It's Friday, June 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Even as more parts of the country continue to fully reopen from the pandemic, you're going to keep seeing what many are calling hygiene theater. Think plexiglass dividers, scanning QR codes for menus, and the constant cleaning of surfaces, despite surface contact not being a significant transmitter of the virus. These actions have much more to do with making customers feel better than it does with science. Mark Fisher, senior editor at The Washington Post, joins us for how long this hygiene theater may last. Next, we have a new tech alert. Over the next few weeks, a company named Kernel will be shipping out a high-tech helmet that can read your mind. It can analyze electrical impulses and blood flow, and researchers hope it can help gain insight into brain aging, mental disorders, strokes, and even what happens to the brain during meditation and even psychedelic trips. Colonel CEO Brian Johnson is an interesting character himself and hopes that these helmets can further our understanding of the brain. Ashley Vance, writer at Bloomberg Businessweek, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. In some places, we are moving back toward normal. In other places, businesses, uh, public facilities, entertainment venues, all kinds of places like that are kind of caught in the middle because on the one hand, they want to open up. They want to give people a feeling of normalcy. On the other hand, they know that some of their customers are still very nervous about going out. Joining us now is Mark Fisher, senior editor at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Mark. It's great to be with you. I wanted to talk about hygiene theater. Right now, the country is opening back up from the pandemic. In a lot of cases, the rollout has been slow and different from state to state, city to city. Everybody's kind of on their own right now. But this hygiene theater, uh, you know, this kind of overcleaning, uh, you know, closing down. Uh, you go to a restaurant or a fast food place and they close down the fountain drink section. You know, it's walled off with like police tape or something like that. And, you know, everybody has to get everything for you. It's a slow roll back into getting back to normal. But these are things that we probably don't need. Uh, you know, we've found out more about the virus and it doesn't stick to surfaces and it's not as transmissible that way. So a lot of people are looking for that moment when we can stop all of that and just get back to normal. So, uh, Mark, tell us a little bit more about this. Well, that's exactly right. And what we're seeing is that in some places we are moving back toward normal. In other places, businesses, uh, public facilities, entertainment venues, all kinds of places like that are kind of caught in the middle because on the one hand, they want to open up. They want to give people a feeling of normalcy. On the other hand, they know that some of their customers are still very nervous about going out. They don't want to think they won't be safe. And so a lot of adopting precautions that really aren't scientifically merited. So you talked about things that, uh, that bars against touching things, uh, you know, this sort of heavy disinfecting of surfaces that we saw in the early months of the lockdown. There are transit systems and theaters and uh, other public facilities that are still doing that, even though they know that the virus is not transmitted by touch. So why are they still doing it? Well, there are two big reasons. One is they're doing it to make their customers feel more comfortable. And the other is they're doing it to save money. They're doing some of these things to save money. So they're, for example, at restaurants, it's hard at some restaurants to get a printed menu anymore. You have to aim your camera and on the phone and, and pull up the QR code and pull up a digital menu. Well, that was initially done to make people feel more comfortable and to stop the spread. But now that's no longer valid scientifically. It's often being done to save money. 
Right. And the question comes now, what will stick? What's going to stay with us after things fully reopen? And you were talking to some people about all of this. And one of the big pushes for getting vaccinated was everything is going to go back to normal, right? But with these things persisting, it tends to degrade that customer experience. You know, you can't move around as freely as you wanted to before. You still have plexiglass up and everything. So I, I kind of agree in that sense that it's still all these barriers are kind of off-putting. But a lot of it, as you mentioned, has to do with psychology. It makes customers feel more comfortable that the business, restaurant, whatever it is, is putting more effort into keeping clean so the customers can feel a little bit better about it. It puts business owners in a really tough spot because on the one hand, they don't want to alienate their customers who just want to feel more comfortable, feel safer. And so they want to keep up some of those precautions to to communicate the sense that the business is taking this very seriously. I talked to some business owners who said, well, we're keeping the temperature checks uh, because it gives people that feeling of comfort. I think eventually much of this goes away, but there's a really cautionary tale in the aftermath of 9-11. And if you think about all the things that have become a permanent part of the landscape, from showing an ID card in the lobby of an office building to some of the restrictions at airports, a lot of these precautions, once they're put in place, it's awfully hard to take them away. You mentioned the article, too, that a lot of Americans that want this kind of clear rules about how things are going to go forward. I mean, we didn't get them throughout the entirety of the pandemic, any really clear course on a lot of things. But there'll probably be a little more disappointment in the coming months as the reopenings are so uneven. Everybody's kind of all over the place. And, you know, obviously businesses for themselves, they don't want to get caught in something and, and you know, an outbreak happen and then they're held liable. So there's going to be a lot of this kind of one rule set, maybe taking it back, this jockeying back and forth is going to happen for a few months at least. I think that's right. And and uh, probably at least through next winter, we're going to see uh, the same kind of back and forth that we just saw, for example, from Southwest Airlines, where first they said they were going to resume serving alcohol on their flights. And then just days later, they scrapped that plan because they saw how, uh, how poorly some passengers were behaving in the air these days. So there's going to be a back and forth. We're seeing it in hotels. We're seeing it in transit systems. And I think uh, one of the main places we'll be seeing it is in entertainment venues, in bars and restaurants, in concert halls, movie theaters. Uh, they really are caught. They don't know exactly what they can safely let go of. And yet I hear from a lot of people that they're just ticked off by some of these restrictions. For example, at Nationals Park, the baseball stadium here in D.C., they put in these touchless dispensers for the condiments, replacing the old bins where you could kind of reach in and get a spoonful of onions to put on your hot dog. They replace that with these machines that put down a huge plop of ketchup or mustard when you wave <laughs> oh, your yeah. hand under it. And fans went crazy. They said they, they didn't know how to operate it. And it was ruining their hot dogs because it was too much stuff coming out of the machine. And so um, finally, the team said, OK, forget it. We won't do the touchless thing anymore. So there's going to be a lot of back and forth. And, you know, a lot of kind of inconsistencies with that, especially at the Nationals Park where you were talking about, you know, you got to download a QR code to order some of your concessions. Well, the person is still manually handing you a hot dog. So you're not touching them for one part of it. <laughs> you're still interacting with them for other parts of it. So it, it can be very confusing. And, you know, it's up to, uh, I mean, in all of these cases, it's our local public health experts who are making these decisions without some type of uh, big national rule or something. It really is going to be down to being done at the local level. And even at the individual 
business level. I, I talked to some folks from the National Restaurant Association, and they're telling their members, hey, you can go back to printed menus. You don't have to do the temperature checks. And yet many of their members are deciding to kind of violate that recommendation and go ahead and continue to have those restrictions uh, in part sometimes because they don't have the staff that they had before the pandemic. And so they don't have somebody who can rewrite the menus and print them out and they don't want to pay for that. So it's going to be a mix of motives here where it's not just about safety. It's not just about curbing the spread of the virus. It's also about what these individual businesses that have been hit so hard can afford going forward. Well, we'll see how much of this hygiene theater does continue. Mark Fisher, senior editor at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. As we add more detectors, we can see that our estimation of where the brain activity is coming from gets closer to the correct location. These advancements allow for precise localization of brain activity. Kernel flow is the beginning of a new era of neuroscience, providing scalable, low-cost cortical activity maps. Joining us now is Ashley Vance, writer at Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. Thanks for joining us, Ashley. Thank you. We're going to talk about uh, an interesting new piece of technology, a $50,000 helmet that the makers of it are hoping can read people's minds, analyze the brain in, in a variety of different ways. This is all the brainchild of a man named Brian Johnson. He has a company called Kernel. And over the next few weeks, they're actually going to start shipping out these these brain helmets out to a bunch of uh, universities, companies, a bunch of people, uh, so they can all start looking into the brain for whatever it is, a variety of different reasons, brain aging, mental disorders, people looking into uh, psychedelic experiences, all that. So Ashley, tell us a little bit about these helmets, and then we'll get into the story of Brian Johnson as well, because he's kind of an interesting guy. Yeah, he is. <laughs> uh, well, you, the company Kernel, they've been around for about five years working to develop this technology, and I've kind of been following their journey along the way. You know, the heart of what they have done is shrink devices that you might find in a hospital. People might be familiar with like fMRI machines, MEG machines. There's five or six things we use today to study the brain. They tend to be really big. They're expensive. They require like a technician to oversee the procedures. And so Colonel shrunk these things down into something that's closer to like a consumer electronics device. And, and they're still able to peer through the skull to watch your neurons fire, to watch blood flow in the brain. And so, you know, the whole, the big idea here is, is, with these tools being um, kind of easier to use, we may get a ton more data about how the brain works than we've ever had before. Tell me a little bit more about the devices they have. There's two devices. One they named Flow. This looks at uh, the uh, the attention span, the brain uh, brain functions like that. And then Flux is the other product that they have, and that's uh, more about brain performance. So how do these helmets uh, look into that? Yeah, and and just so people know, I mean, the helmets they look, they look like bike helmets more or less, um, just maybe like a slightly chunkier version. And on the inside, you know, they've got lasers and computer chips and and all these sensors. But yeah, so one more or less tracks electrical activity. So when when you're thinking about something or doing an activity, you know, your neurons are firing, and this sends pulses of light through the skull into the brain and is actually able to kind of detect when your neurons 
fire. And so that gives us like one bucket of clues and information about interesting things happening in the mind. The other one tracks blood flow. Same sort of thing when when you're doing an activity, um, you know, blood rushes to different regions of your brain to feed it with oxygen. And and so the helmet looks for that. It's interesting uh, when I was talking to scientists, I, there's still a lot of debate around which one, which method is better for which types of functions. And this is part of the reason we kind of need these things. We still don't know a ton <laughs> about what's going on in the brain when we're doing activities and thinking. And so they wanted to make both devices. Yeah, and th this, these are going to be shipped out to Harvard Medical School, University of Texas, Institute of, for Advanced Consciousness Studies. I mean, there's a lot of uh, big labs and, and, and companies that are going to start toying around with this. So what is the overall goal of this? Obviously, you kind of mentioned, you know, stepping away from these huge rooms with, you know, just huge machines that would do this. I think uh, Brian Johnson for himself mentioned he wanted to eventually bring this down to the cost of a, a smartphone one day so more people can start using it. But what's the overall goal with it? Yeah, you know, in the near term, while the devices are expensive, I think this is going to start out, like you mentioned, with research institutions. And so I, I talked to one scientist who studies people who have suffered from strokes or Parkinson's disease, and, and often they're going through therapy sessions where they have their brains imaged by one of these expensive machines once at the beginning of the therapy session and then once at the end, six months later, to see how things went. You know, these scientists are really excited for them to wear the helmets basically every day and we would get this much better picture potentially of what therapies really work, how effective they are. And, and you know, you would be able to monitor um, the, the progress of these things much on a much more granular level. Eventually, if they get the price down and there's tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of these machines out there. I mean, the way Brian envisions it is this would be kind of this grand study of mental health on a way that we've never had it before. And people would essentially use these things kind of like a, a Fitbit or an aura ring um, to, to check on their body. You know, just like today, if your heart, if you're worried about your heart, you go in to have all these tests done and, and there's tons of things we can do. If you're having mental health issues, there's really not a lot of tools um, at doctor's disposals to tell what's going on. And so, so Brian's big hope is this is like a big mental health breakthrough just by gathering so much more information. I mean, it's definitely a very interesting goal, something that could potentially help a lot of people. I did want to mention, because you put it in the article, that they might have set some type of record for rejection where... You know, a lot of investors obviously are probably skeptical about something like this. And there was a bunch of people that passed on Brian's sales pitch for all this stuff. In the end, they, they were able to get money. I think he used a lot of his own money uh, to help develop all this. Yeah, I mean, the, I think the number was 228 investors passed on Colonel. Uh, luckily, so Brian, a lot of people don't know him, but he, he's actually an incredibly rich individual. He sold a company to PayPal a few years ago and made about uh, 300 to $400 million yeah. from the sale. He bought, Venmo. So he bought Venmo as well. He did. Yeah, exactly. And um, and so so he put... $54 million of, dollars of his own money into this basically for the first four years to prove to prove that his ideas worked while everyone else was rejecting him. And then finally, they got the devices to start working and they had the prototypes and, and investors put another, you know, $55 million or so into the company. Um, so it has been this huge high risk. I mean, basically, people thought it was not really possible to make a device that was 
that could actually get any kind of decent data through the skull just from a helmet. The, the thinking has been that you really need to put implants in near the neurons to get um, any sort of major breakthroughs. Right. And we're seeing uh, people like Elon Musk and his companies working on on things like that. I think they just had a demonstration, you know, a few months ago with some pigs and whatnot with with these brain implants. So definitely a, a much more non-invasive way to go with these helmets. I, I always love new tech. I always love these types of things, these ideas, these goals. But just as interesting as the tech is itself, the people behind them are also pretty interesting. So tell me a little bit more about Brian Johnson, because you spent a lot of time with him. And I mean, he he has a, an interesting health regimen. Uh, I mean, you you put in the article snorting stem cells. He you know constantly getting tested. I think he's about forty three, but the you know his body through all of this stuff, he's uh, registering more uh, as a thirty year old man. So tell me a little bit about him. Yeah, Brian's quite the the character. Uh, you know, people might be familiar with like the the quantified self movement. This idea you're always measuring your like a Fitbit is a rudimentary example of it, but Brian measures everything about his body and, you know, tons of doctors working on all this stuff. And he now has this, this health regimen where he, you know, he eats once a day, very early in the morning, he eats like 2,300 calories in one meal and then fasts the rest of the day. He goes to bed at eight o'clock every night and wakes up at four and, and does his workout routine and then his breakfast. And, you know, he and I are, we're about the same age. We're both 43 and I reported on the story for about three years. And so over that time I stayed, um, you know, I went from 40 to 43 and his biological age dropped according to the doctors from 43 to about 30. And he has the, uh, the exercise potential of a, of like a 25 year old. So it was, it was a very humbling story <laughs> to report on well, as we went. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he's doing IV infusions of anti-aging fluids, uh, you know, a bunch of vitamins. There's a lot that goes into it more than just, you know, uh, eating healthy and, and exercising. But uh, yeah, just a, just an interesting look into the guy himself. And as, as I said, the goal overall with this thing, it seems pretty good. And, and if we can learn more about the brain, I mean, that's going to help out in so many different ways. Yeah, I mean, this could be a huge breakthrough. Like, you know, like any powerful technology, there's certainly going to be big questions that come with with all this. A couple of the companies that are are getting early access to the helmets, you know, they want to use them to to find out like maybe what makes a hit song or which parts of like a movie trigger things in people's brain to make it more entertaining. So, you know, you could see where we get into black mirror territory pretty quick, <laughs> right. stuff like that. But, uh, but the, at least, you know, Brian's, uh, I believe him because I spent a lot of time with him. I mean, his overall goal really is, toward mental health. I talk about it in the story. You know, he, he had depression very bad and had sort of suicidal thoughts at one point in his life. And that's kind of what triggered a lot of this. And, um, you know, I think he genuinely wants to help people. And so, but yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's quite, he's quite yeah. an interesting figure to be well, leading this. Well, they're going to start shipping out pretty soon. So I'm sure we'll start hearing more about these kernel devices, you know, in the next few months and, and in short order. So we'll keep an eye out for all of that. Ashley Vance, writer at Bloomberg Businessweek magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.